0: Chapter 5 of The Young Railroaders. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Young Railroaders by F. Lovell Coombs. Chapter 5 An Electrical Detective. Or, Mr. Black wants you. Jack, who was passing through the business department of the Hammerton office, toward the stair which led to the operating room, promptly turned aside and entered the manager's private room. "'Good morning, Jack. Sit down.' "'My boy,' began the manager, "'can you keep a secret?' "'Why, yes, sir,' responded Jack, wondering. "'Very well. But I must explain first. I suppose you did not know it—we kept it quiet—' but the real reason Hansen, the janitor, was discharged a month ago was that he was found taking money from the safe here, which he had in some way learned to open. After he left I changed the safe combination, and thought the trouble was at an end. Last Tuesday morning the cash was again a little short. At the time I simply thought an error had been made in counting the night before. This morning a second ten-dollar bill is missing— and the cash-box shows unmistakable signs of having been tampered with. Now Johnson, the counter-clerk, to whom I had confided the new combination—for it is customary, you know, that two shall be able to open a safe, as a precaution against the combination being forgotten—Johnson is entirely above suspicion. Still, to make doubly sure, I am going to alter the combination once more, and share it with someone outside of the business department and as you have impressed me very favourably, I have chosen you. That is, of course, concluded the manager, if you have no objection. Certainly not. I'm sure I appreciate the confidence, sir, said Jack quickly. Very well, then. The combination is right twenty, twice, back nine, right ten. Can you remember that? For you must not write it down, you know. Jack repeated the number several times, and again thanking the manager for the compliment, continued upstairs to the telegraph room. Two mornings later Jack was again called into Mr. Black's office. For a moment, while Jack wondered, the manager eyed him strangely, then asked, "'What was that combination, Jack?' "'Right ninety. No, uh, right thirty. Why, I believe I have forgotten it, sir.' declared Jack, in confusion. Perhaps you have forgotten this, too, then? As he spoke, the manager took from his desk a small notebook. I found it on the floor in front of the safe this morning. It is mine, sir. I must have dropped it last night. I worked extra until after midnight, sir, explained Jack. And on the way out I chased a mouse in here from the stairway, and when it ran under the safe, I dropped to my knees to find it. The book must have fallen from my pocket. But what is wrong, sir? The cash-box is not in the safe this morning. Jack started back, the colour fading from his cheeks as the significance of it all came to him. "'And now you pretend to have the combination entirely wrong,' went on the manager. Jack found his voice. "'Mr. Black, you are mistaken. You are mistaken. I never could do such a thing. Never!' "'I would prefer proof,' Mr. Black said coldly. Jack caught at the idea. "'Would you let me try to prove it, sir? Will you give me a week in which to try and clear myself?' "'Well, I did not mean it that way. But—' "'All right, a week. And if things do not look different by that time, and you still claim ignorance, you will have to go. That is all there is to it.' "'Thank you, sir.' At the door, Jack turned back. Mr. Black, you are positive you returned the box to the safe? Positive. It is the last thing I do before going home. During spare moments on his wire that morning, Jack debated the mystery from every side. Finally, he had boiled it down to two conflicting facts. First, that the box was placed in the safe the night before, and in the morning was gone, and that, besides the manager, he was the only one who could have opened the safe and taken it. And, second, that, of course, he knew his own innocence. The only alternative, then, was that Mr. Black had been mistaken in thinking he had returned the box to the safe. Grasping at this possibility, Jack argued on. How could the manager have been mistaken? Overlooked the box? Say, because of its being covered by something? "'Why, it may still be there yet!' exclaimed Jack, hopefully. And a few minutes later, relieved from his wire for lunch, he hurriedly descended again to the manager's office. "'Mr. Black, may I look around here a bit?' he requested. "'Look around? What for?' "'To see if I cannot find something to help solve this mystery,' responded Jack, not wishing directly to suggest that the manager had overlooked the box." "'So you keep to it that you know nothing, eh? Well, go ahead,' said the manager shortly, turning back to his desk. Jack's hopes were quickly shattered. Neither on the desk, nor a table beside the safe, was there anything which could have concealed the missing box. Stooping, he glanced under the table. Something white, a newspaper, leaning against the wall, caught his eye. With a flutter of hope he reached beneath and threw it aside—' there was nothing behind it. Disappointedly, he caught the newspaper up and tossed it into the waste-basket. Suddenly, on a thought, he recovered the paper and opened it. On discovering it was the bulletin, a paper he knew Mr. Black seldom read, the idea took definite shape. And, yes, it was of yesterday's date. "'Mr. Black,' exclaimed Jack, "'this is not your paper, is it?' Somewhat impatiently, the manager glanced up. "'The bulletin? No. Were you reading it yesterday, sir?' "'Well, I don't see what you're driving at, but—no. It was probably left here by Smith, one of the express clerks next door. He was in for a while yesterday on some telegraph money-order business. Yes, he did have it in his hand, now I remember. But why?' At the mention of Smith's name, Jack started— and there immediately came to him a remembrance of having a few days previously seen the express clerk on a street-corner in earnest conversation with Hanson, the discharged janitor. In suppressed excitement, he said, "'When was Smith here, Mr. Black? What time?' The manager smiled sardonically and turned back to his work. "'No, you can't fasten it on Smith,' he said shortly. "'It was after he went out that I returned the box to the safe.' But, if it's any good to you, he was in here from about five-thirty to ten minutes to six, and was talking with one of the boys in the outer office when I left. "'And, Mr. Black, were you outside during the time Smith was in here?' "'No, I—' "'Yes, I was, too. About a quarter to six I was over at the speaking-tube for a minute.' "'But enough of this nonsense,' the manager added sharply. THE BOX WAS IN THE SAFE WHEN I CLOSED IT. DON'T BOTHER ME ANY FURTHER WITH YOUR PRETENSE OF INVESTIGATING. I DON'T BELIEVE IT IS SINCERE. DESPITE THIS CUTTING DECLARATION, JACK TURNED AWAY WITH SECRET SATISFACTION. JUST OUTSIDE THE OFFICE DOOR HE MADE A SECOND DISCOVERY, A SMALL ONE, BUT ONE WHICH FURTHER STRENGTHENED THE THEORY HE HAD FORMED. IT WAS A SMALL coal CINDER AND AN ASH STAIN IN THE SHAPE OF A HEEL apparently overlooked by a careless sweeper. They could only have been left by a foot, which came from the cellar. Promptly Jack turned toward the cellar door and made his way down into the big basement. Going directly to one of the rear windows, he carefully examined it. The cobwebs and the dust on the sill had not been disturbed for months. He turned to the second, and instantly emitted a shrill whistle of delight. Its cobwebs had been torn and swept aside, and the ledge brushed almost clean. And evidently but a short time before, for the cleared space showed little of the dust which constantly filtered through the floor above. "'Fine!' exclaimed Jack. "'Now I—' He paused. The window was securely latched on the inside. For several minutes Jack stood, disappointed and mystified. Then, examining the latch closely, he laughed— and grasping it with his fingers, easily pulled it out. It had been forced from the outside and merely pressed back into the hole. But its being replaced showed that the intruder had not made his escape that way. Jack began an examination of the end of the cellar under the express office, and the exit was soon disclosed. The dividing wall was of boarding, and at the outer end, to facilitate the examination of the gas-meters of the two companies, was a narrow door. Ordinarily, this door was secured on the telegraph company's side by a strong bolt. The bolt was drawn, and the door swung easily to Jack's touch. On the farther side, all was darkness, however, and Jack returned to the window. As he approached it, something on the floor beneath caught his eye. It was a lead pencil. He picked it up, and with a cry of triumph discovered stamped upon it the initials and miniature crest of the express company. And, more, a peculiar long-pointed sharpening promised the possibility of fixing its actual owner. Filled with elation, and confident that it was now only a matter of time when he should clear himself, Jack hastened upstairs, determined to pursue his investigation next door, where he knew several of the younger clerks. "'Hello, Danny!' he said, entering the express office, and addressing a sandy-haired boy of his own age. "'Say, who in here sharpens pencils like this?' "'Hello? That? Oh, I'd know that whittle a mile off. We call em daggers. Smith's daggers. Where did you get it?' "'Smith! Who wants Smith?' Jack turned with a start. It was the clerk himself. Instantly Jack extended the pencil. "'Is this yours, Mr. Smith?' he asked, and held his breath. "'Yes, it is. Where did you find—' Suddenly the clerk turned upon Jack with a look of terror in his face, but in a moment he had recovered himself, and abruptly snatching the pencil from Jack's hand, proceeded to his desk. Jack was jubilant. Nothing could have been more convincing of the clerk's guilt. Following this feeling, however, came one of pity for the unfortunate man, and after a silent debate with himself— Jack followed him. Placing a hand on the clerk's shoulder, he said in a low voice, "'Mr. Smith, I have found out about that cash-box of ours. Now look here. Why not confess the wretched business before it is too late, and—' The clerk spun around. "'Cash-box. Business. What do you refer to?' "'Mr. Smith, it was you took our cash-box last night.' The clerk was colourless, but he only faltered an instant what nonsense is this he demanded angrily i never heard of your cash-box what do you mean by well then i'll tell you just how you did it said jack determinedly while you were in mr black's office yesterday afternoon he stepped out and left you alone for a moment the cash-box was on the table you immediately saw the opportunity perhaps hanson had done the same thing and put you on to it You saw the opportunity and threw over the box a newspaper you had in your hand. As you had hoped, not seeing the box, Mr. Black forgot it, and left at six o'clock without returning it to the safe. You made sure of that by remaining about the outer office until he left. And then, after midnight, you came down to the office here, forced an entrance into our cellar, and went upstairs and secured the box. "'I'm sorry, but isn't that so?' The clerk laughed dryly. "'The great Mr. Sherlock Holmes, Jr.' He remarked sarcastically. "'Rubbish! Run away and don't bother me with your silly detective theories!' And hurried back to his desk. Jack stood, baffled and surprised. "'Look here, or—' As Smith again spun about, a hard look came into his face. "'Look here! How do you come to know so much about this business yourself, eh?' Jack uttered an exclamation, and a sudden fear of the clerk came over him. Was Smith thinking of trying to place the blame upon him? However, further discussion was clearly useless, and he turned away. The following morning brought quick proof that Jack's suddenly inspired fear of Smith was too well founded. As he entered the telegraph office, Mr. Black called him and handed him a note. "'Now what do you have to say?' he demanded solemnly. In a lead-pencil scrawl, Jack read, "'Mr. Black, your young operator, or, can tell you something about that cash-box. He was showing the key of the box to someone yesterday, and I saw him. Maybe you will find the key in his office coat. Yours, a friend.'" "'It is the key,' said the manager, producing a small key on a ring. "'I recall having left it in the lock.'" Jack stood pale and speechless. Despite the disguised writing and poor spelling, the letter was from Smith, he had not a doubt. But how could he prove it? Truly matters were beginning to look serious for him. Quickly, however, Jack's natural spirit of fight to the end returned to him, and handing the letter back, he said, respectfully but determinedly, "'Mr. Black, I still hold you to your promise to give me a week in which to prove my innocence.' "'And I'll prove, too, sir, that this key was placed in my pocket by someone else, probably by the one who really took the box. I believe I know who it is, but I'll prove it first. Reluctantly, the manager consented, for he now firmly believed at least in Jack's complicity, and leaving him, Jack sought the operating-room to spend every spare moment in turning the matter over in his mind. "'What next could he do?' If only he could find the box! What would Smith probably have done with it? For it seemed unlikely he would have taken it away with him. Might he not, after removing the money, have hidden it in the cellar? Jack determined to search there, and accordingly, at noon, hastening through his lunch, he descended and began a systematic hunt amid the odds and ends filling the basement. The first noon hour's search brought no result— The second day, returning to the task somewhat dispiritedly, Jack began overhauling a pile of old cross-pieces. There was a squeak, and a rat shot out. In a moment Jack was in hot pursuit with a stick. The rat ran toward the old furnace and disappeared. At the spot an instant after, Jack found a hole in the brick foundation and thrust the stick into it. The stick caught, he pulled, and several bricks fell out. Dropping to his knees, Jack peered into the opening. A cry broke from him, and thrusting in a hand he grasped something and drew it forth. It was the lost cash-box! Uttering a shout of triumph, Jack leaped to his feet and started on a run for the stair. But suddenly he halted. After all, was he absolutely sure it was Smith who had placed it there? Would the producing of the box prove it? The question, which had not before occurred to Jack, startled him. As he stood thinking, half-consciously he tried the cover of the box. To his surprise it gave. He opened it, and the box almost fell from his hands. It still contained the money, and apparently untouched. But in a moment Jack thought he understood. Smith, or whoever it was, had left it as a clever means of saving themselves from the worst in the event of being found out intending to return for it if the excitement blew safely over. Then why not wait and catch them at it? Good. But how? Jack's inventive genius soon furnished the answer. That's it. Great, he said to himself delightedly. I'll get down and do it early in the morning, and now I'll stick this back in the hole and fix the bricks up again seven o'clock the following morning found Jack carrying out his plan. First conveying to the cellar from the battery room two gravity jars, he placed them in a dark corner behind the furnace. Next, finding an old lightning arrester, he opened up the hiding-place and arranged the arrestor beneath the cash-box in such a way that on the box being moved the arrestor-arm would be released, fly back, and make a contact. Then, having carefully closed the opening— he procured some fine insulated wire, and proceeded to make up his circuit. From the arrester, out beneath the bricks, around the furnace, to the battery, up the wall and through the door by the steam-pipes into the business-room, and, running upstairs and procuring a step-ladder, on up the office-wall, through the next floor, into the operating-room and there a few minutes later he had connected the wires to a call-bell on a ledge immediately behind the table at which he worked, and the alarm was complete. Although Jack knew that the clerk next door returned from his dinner a half-hour earlier than the others in the express office, he had little expectation of Smith visiting the cash-box at that time. Nevertheless, as the noon-hour drew near, he found himself watching the alarm-bell with growing excitement. "'There might be just a chance of Smith visiting the box,' he told himself, "'just to learn whether I had—' From behind him came a sharp zip-zip, then a whir. With a bound, Jack was on his feet and rushing for the door. Down the stairs he went, three steps at a time, and into the manager's private office. "'Mr. Black,' he cried, "'I've got the man who took the box. Down the cellar. Quick!' I found the box with the money still in it and fixed up an alarm bell circuit to go off when he came for it, he explained hurriedly as the manager stared. In a moment, Mr. Black was on his feet and hastening after Jack toward the cellar stairway. Quietly, they tiptoed down. They reached the bottom. There, Jack said, pointing in triumph, and looking, the manager beheld Smith, the express clerk, on his knees beside the furnace, before him on the floor the missing cash-box. Ten minutes later the manager of the express company, who had been called in, passed out of Mr. Black's office with his clerk in charge, and the telegraph manager, turning to Jack, warmly shook his hand. "'I am more sorry than I can say to have placed the blame upon you, my boy,' he said sincerely, "'and I am very thankful for the clever way you cleared the mystery up. You are quite a detective.' Sort of electrical detective, aren't you? he added, smiling. And for some time, about the office, and even over the wires, Jack went by that name, the Electrical Detective. End of chapter Chapter 6 of The Young Railroaders this LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Young Railroaders by F. Lovell Coombs. Chapter 6 Jack Has His Adventure. One afternoon a few days following the affair of the missing cash box, Manager Black appeared in the Hammerton operating room and, after a consultation with the chief operator, called Jack Orr from his wire. "'Jack,' said the manager, "'there have been some important developments in the big will-case on trial out at Oakton, and the Daily Star has asked for a fast operator to send in their story tonight. The chief tells me you have developed into a rapid sender. Would you care to go?' "'I'd be glad of the opportunity, sir,' said Jack delightedly. "'All right. The chief will let you off now, so you'll have plenty of time to catch the seven o'clock train.' And now, Jack, do your best, for the morning bulletin is sending its news-matter in by the other telegraph company, and we don't want them to get ahead of us in any way. When Jack reached the station, several of the newspaper men, including West, of the Star, already were there. Among them he saw Raub, a reporter of the bulletin, and with him Simpson, an operator of the opposition telegraph company. "'Why, hello, kid!' said the latter, on seeing Jack. "'They are not sending you out to Oakton, are they?' (laughs) "'They are,' responded Jack, with pride. Simpson laughed, and somewhat indignant, Jack passed on down the platform. On turning back, he noticed Simpson and Raub apart, talking earnestly. As he again neared them, both glanced toward him, and abruptly the conversation ceased. At once Jack's suspicions were aroused— for he knew Raub had the name of being very unscrupulous in news-getting matters, and that Simpson was not much better. He determined to watch them. But nothing further attracted his attention, and finally, the train arriving, they boarded it and made a quick run of the ten miles to the little village. There Jack headed for the local telegraph office. He found it a tiny affair, in a small coal office on the southern outskirts of the village. Introducing himself to the elderly lady operator, who was just leaving, he went to the key and announced his arrival to the chief at Hammerton. It was an hour later when West, the star reporter, appeared. "'Here yar, you a youngster,' said he. "'A thousand words for a starter. It's going to be a great story. I'll be back in half an hour with another batch.' Promptly Jack called H, and soon was clicking away in full swing." but suddenly the instruments ceased to respond. The wire had opened. Jack tested with his earth connection, and finding the opening was to the south, waited, thinking the receiving operator at Hammerton had opened his key. But minute after minute passed, and finally, becoming anxious, he cut off the southern end and began calling B, the terminal office, to the north. "'I—I,' said B.' "'Get H. on another wire and ask him what is wrong here,' Jack sent quickly. "'We are being held up on some very important stuff.' "'H. says it is open north of him,' announced B., returning. "'We are putting in a set of repeaters here, so you can reach him this way.' A moment later Jack heard Hammerton calling him from the north, and in another moment he was again sending rapidly but scarcely had Jack sent a hundred words when this wire also suddenly failed. When several minutes again passed and no further sound came, Jack leaned back in despair. Suddenly he sat upright. Raub and Simpson! Was it possible this was their work? Was it possible they had cut the wires? Quickly he made a test which would show whether the brakes were near him. Adjusting the relay magnets near the armature, he clicked the key there was not the faintest response. Switching the instruments to the southern end of the wire, he repeated the test, with the same result. On both ends the break was within a short distance of him. Undoubtedly the wires had been cut. Jack sprang to his feet, and seized his hat. "'I'll find that southern break if I have to walk halfway to Hammerton,' he said determinedly, and leaving the office, set off down the moonlit road, his eyes fixed on the wire overhead." Scarcely a mile distant, Jack uttered an exclamation, and, running forward, caught up the severed end of the telegraph line. A moment's examination of the wire showed it had been cut through with a sharp file. Yes, undoubtedly it was the work of Raub and Simpson, in an effort to keep the news from the star, and score a beat for the opposition telegraph company and the morning bulletin. "'But you haven't done it yet!' said Jack grimly, turning to look about him. How could he overcome the break in the wire? As the cut had been made close to the glass insulator on the cross-arm, only one of the two ends hung to the ground, and he saw that he could not splice them. And in any case he could not climb the pole and take that heavy stretch of wire with him. His eyes fell on a barbed-wire fence bordering the road and like an inspiration, Alex Ward's feat with the rails at Hadley Corners occurred to him. Could he not do the same thing with one of the fence wires? Connect this end of the telegraph line—and fortunately it was the Hammerton end—say, to the upper strand, then back to the office, and string a wire from the fence into the instruments? To think was to act. Dragging the telegraph wire to the fence, Jack looped it over the topmost strand near one of the posts, and wound it about several times to ensure a good contact. Then on the run he started back for the telegraph office. As he neared the little building, Jack saw a figure within. Thinking the star reporter had returned with further copy, he quickened his steps. At the doorway he halted in consternation. Instead of the reporter were two desperate-looking characters, and on the table beside them a half-emptied bottle and a large revolver." Jack hesitated a moment, then stepped inside. "'What are you men doing here?' he demanded. "'Ah, hello, kiddo. We are the new operators,' said one of them, with tipsy humour. "'You're discharged, see? And you get to!' he suddenly shouted, catching up the pistol. And promptly Jack got. A few yards distant, however, he halted. Now, what was he to do? Oh, here you are, eh? Where have you been? It was West, the Star man, and he spoke angrily. I was here ten minutes ago and found the office empty. And if the other company could have handled my stuff, yours would have lost it. I've just been interrupting, Jack hastily explained, telling of the severed wire and his plan to bridge the break. The reporter uttered an indignant exclamation. "'It's Raub's work, sure, as you're born,' he said hotly. "'But say, youngster, we can't permit ourselves to be beaten this way. Can't we do something?' "'We might get some help and drive the roughs out,' suggested Jack. "'No, we haven't time. And then they might put up a drunken fight and shoot somebody. Come, think of something else.' You surely can get over this new difficulty, after your clever idea for getting around the cut in the wire.' "'I don't know,' replied Jack, doubtfully, glancing toward the office window. "'If there was any way of getting the instruments—what could you do with them?' "'We could turn the barn there into an office. I'd run connections out through the back to the fence. It's just behind.' "'Say, I've an idea, then.' IF IT WOULDN'T TAKE YOU LONG TO REMOVE THE INSTRUMENTS FROM THE TABLE. ONLY A COUPLE OF MINUTES. COME ON, SAID WEST. LEADING THE WAY BACK TOWARD THE OFFICE, HE EXPLAINED. I'LL GET THESE BEGGARS OUT. YOU HIDE ROUND THE CORNER. AND as SOON AS THE WAY IS CLEAR, RUSH IN AND GET YOUR INSTRUMENTS, AND DUCK FOR THE BARN. I'LL JOIN YOU LATER. HOW ARE YOU GOING TO GET THEM OUT? WHISPERED JACK. WATCH, SAID THE REPORTER. As Jack drew out of sight about the rear of the building, his mystification was added to when he saw West pause before the door, stoop, and pick up a handful of gravel. But immediately the reporter entered the doorway and spoke, his purpose was explained. "'Hello, you two big rummies!' he said, in his most offensive tones. "'What are you doing here?' The two men were in a momentarily genial mood, however, and missed the insult. "'Why, hello, pard, old man,' responded one of them cordially. "'Come in and make yourself to home. Want to buy a telegraph office? Cheap?' "'Cheap! You are the cheapest article I see here,' said West, yet more insultingly. "'What do you mean by sitting down in respectable chairs? You ought to be tied up in a cow stable. That's where you belong.' There was an angry growl as the two men scrambled to their feet, and peering about the corner Jack saw West back into the door. "'Come on out, you big overgrown cowards!' shouted the reporter. "'I'll thrash the both of you, with one hand tied behind me. "'And take that!' With his last words, West suddenly threw the gravel full in the faces of the now enraged men, and spinning about, raced off down the road. They stumbled forth, shouting with rage, and one of them fired. The bullet went yards wide, and West ran on. Without further wait, Jack darted into the office, In a few minutes had the relay and key from the table, secured some spare ends of wire for connections, and sped for the barn. There all was darkness. Entering, a search with matches soon produced a lantern, however— Lighting it, Jack stepped without to discover whether its glimmer could be seen from the direction of the office. As he closed the door, West appeared, panting and laughing. (laughs) "'Well, what do you think of that stunt, youngster?' he chuckled. "'Did you get the instruments?' "'Yes. I was out here to learn whether the light of a lantern, I found, could be seen.' "'Good head! No, it doesn't show. And come on, here the beggars are again!' "'West led the way inside and closed the door behind them. "'Now what, my boy?' "'A table first. "'Here, the very thing,' said Jack, making towards a long feed-box at the rear of the barn. "'As they cleared its top of a pile of harness, West asked, "'Just what is the scheme here, youngster? I don't think I understand it.' "'Oh, simple enough. I'll just run the wires out through that knot-hole—' and connect one to the fence and the other to the ground. "'Simple. It looks different to me,' declared the reporter admiringly. "'All right, go ahead. I'll get down on this box and grind out the rest of my story.' Already Jack was at work sorting over the odd pieces of wire he had brought. Finding two suitable lengths and straightening them out, he quickly connected them to the instruments, placed the instruments in a convenient position on the top of the box— And thrust the wire ends through the knot-hole. Then, hastening outside to the rear of the barn, he proceeded to connect one of them to the same strand of the fence-wire to which the telegraph line was secured, a mile distant. The other he drove deep into the damp earth beneath the edge of the building. And, theoretically, the circuit was complete. Hurriedly he re-entered the barn to learn the result. "'Well,' said West, anxiously, "'There is current, but it's too weak.' Jack's voice quavered with his disappointment. "'I suppose the rusty splices of that old fence offer too much resistance.' "'But I'm not beaten yet!' he exclaimed, suddenly recovering his determination. Turning from the box, he began pacing up and down the floor. "'I'll figure it out somehow if I—' "'Oh!' with the cry, Jack darted for the door, out and toward the office. The intoxicated roughs were again in possession. Quietly he made his way to a dark window adjoining the lighted window of the operating room—the window of a little storeroom where, the local operator had told him, the batteries were located. The window was unlocked, and with little difficulty he succeeded in raising it. Cautiously he climbed within, and feeling about, found the row of glass jars. Quickly disconnecting two of them, he carried them to the window-sill, clambered out, and hastened with them to the barn. "'Now I've got it, Mr. West,' he cried. "'I'll have H again in fifteen minutes.' West started to his feet. "'Can't I help you?' "'All right, come on,' said Jack, and ten minutes later, working like beavers, they had transferred to the barn the entire office battery of twenty cells." In nervous haste, Jack connected the cells in series, then to the wire. Instantly, the instrument closed with a solid click. "'Hurrah! We win! We win!' cried West, and Jack, springing to the key, whirled off a succession of H's. H! 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 On! Rush! H! H! I! I! H! Where have you been? What's the matter? It was the chief, and the words came sharply and angrily. The wire was cut both sides of the village, shot back Jack. I think it was Raub and Simpson's work, and two roughs chased me out of the office with a revolver. Hired by them, I suppose. I've fixed up an office in the barn, and am sending for a mile through a wire fence to bridge the cut. Or. For a moment the chief was too amazed to reply. Then rapidly he said, "'Or? You are a Trump!' "'But come ahead with that report now, and make the best time you ever made in your life. I'll copy you myself.' And there, in a corner of the big barn, by the dim light of the lantern, and to the strange accompaniment of munching cattle and restlessly stamping horses, West rode as though his life depended upon it, and Jack sent as he had never sent before. And exactly an hour later the young operator sent three-zero, meaning the end, to one of the speediest feats of press-work on that year's records of the Hammerton office. Though it was three a.m. when Jack got back to Hammerton, he found the chief operator at the station to meet him. "'I had to come down to congratulate you,' said the chief. "'That was one of the brightest bits of work all around that I've heard of for years.' "'But did we beat them?' asked Jack. "'We assuredly did. For didn't you know?' Those two roughs later went up and cleaned out the other office—the very men who had hired them to disable us. And what with having had a slow-working wire previously, the bulletin didn't get in more than five hundred words. We gave the star over three solid columns. The manager's congratulation the following morning was as enthusiastic as that of the chief. "'And as a practical appreciation, Jack,' he added, "'we are going to give you a full month's vacation,' with salary. We think you earned it." When Jack returned to his wire, one of the first remarks he heard was from Alex Ward, at Bixton. "'Well, old boy,' clicked Alex, "'your adventure came, didn't it? And it has beaten me to a standstill.'" "'Nonsense! It was your stunt at Hadley Corners that suggested the trick that got me out of it,' declared Jack. "'But say, the manager has given me a month's vacation. What do you think of that?' "'He did! Look here,' said Alex, quickly. "'Come to Bixton and spend some of it with me. I'll promise you all kinds of a good time. Though I'm not sure I can guarantee anything as exciting as last night's work,' he added. Jack readily accepted the invitation. And, as it turned out, Alex might as well have made his promise. He could have kept it.' End of chapter. Chapter 7 of The Young Railroaders. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Young Railroaders by F. Lovell Coombs. Chapter 7 A Race Through the Flames. The fall had been an exceptionally dry one in that section of the Middle West, and in consequence several forest fires had occurred, several not far from Bixton. Thus, when a few mornings following Jack's arrival, he and Alex proposed a visit to the old house in the woods, where Alex had had his thrilling experience with the foreign trackman, Mrs. Ward objected. "'You know there was a fire but five miles west yesterday, Alex,' she said but that was only in the grass along the track mother and the section men soon had it out they are watching everywhere and on the first sign of smoke we will light for home like good fellows won't we jack he promised somewhat reluctantly mrs ward finally consented and gave the boys a lunch and they set off to make a day of it paying a visit first to the abandoned brickyard It was noon when Jack and Alex emerged from the woods at the rear of the deserted old cabin. "'So that's it!' exclaimed Jack, with keen interest, as they went forward. "'And up there is the very door you dropped from, I suppose.' "'Yes, that's it. Still half open, too, just as I left it. And over there is the barn and cow-stable. But let us have lunch first, and I'll explain everything afterward,' Alex said, leading the way toward the house." I am as hollow as a bass drum. Ten minutes later, sitting on the cabin floor just within the doorway, eating and chatting, the two boys became suddenly silent, and sniffed at the air. With an exclamation both leaped to their feet, and to the door. Rolling from the trees, at the southern border of the clearing was a white bank of smoke. The woods were on fire. "'Which way?' cried Jack, as they sprang forth the railroad? Alex darted to the corner of the house and glanced about. No, the wind has swung to the southwest. We'd never make it. North, for the brickyard. Come on. If we're cornered there, we can swim the river, he explained as they ran. The fire isn't likely to cross the water. They reached the trees and immediately found themselves in a madly frightened procession. At their feet scurried rabbits, squirrels, chipmunks— A fox flashed by within a yard of them. Overhead, birds screamed and called in terror. On they dashed, and a ghostly yellow light began to envelop them. "'The smoke overhead,' said Alex. "'It will soon be down here, too.' "'I smell it,' panted Jack a moment later. Soon they began to feel it in their eyes. Jack began to lag. "'How much farther, Alex?' he gasped. "'Only a short distance now. (sighs) Yes, here we are,' announced Alex as brighter light appeared ahead of them, a moment after they broke into the clearing. Without slackening pace, Alex headed for the old semaphore. "'From up there we can see just how we stand,' he explained. Almost exhausted, they reached it, and Alex ran up the ladder. Scrambling onto the little platform, he turned toward the river, two hundred yards distant, a cry broke from him. "'We are cut off! The fire has crossed the river!' Jack hastily clambered up beside him, and above the treetops, beyond the river, he beheld a grey-white cloud. The boys gazed at one another with paling faces. "'What shall we do?' asked Jack. Alex shook his head. "'We might swim the river and try a dash for it, It is two miles out of the woods, but there might be a chance. We couldn't do it. We're too nearly exhausted. How about staying right in the river, by the bank,' Jack suggested. I've heard of people doing that. It is too deep here, and it's awfully cold. We would chill and cramp in no time. "'No, I tell you,' went on Alex suddenly, "'we'll try one of the old tile ovens on the other side of the yard.' Perhaps we can box ourselves up in one of them." There was no time to lose, for the clearing was now blue with smoke, and climbing hastily to the ground, the boys were again off on the run. They reached the group of round-topped ovens. A glance showed their hope was futile. All about the furnaces were thickets of dead weeds, and a short distance away, and directly to windward, was a huge pile of light brushwood. Promptly Alex turned back. "'We would be smothered or roasted in five minutes,' he declared. "'No, it is the water, or nothing. Perhaps we can work it by floating on a log.' As they approached the river the boys crossed the old yard siding. Stumbling over the rails, partially blinded with the now stinging smoke, both suddenly ran into something and fell on a heap. Scrambling to their feet they found an old push-car with low sides. Alex uttered a cry. Jack, why can't we make a dash down the spur with this old car, pushing it? And say, couldn't we lift it onto the main-line rails and run all the way home? Jack hesitated. Look there, he said, pointing to the wall of smoke into which the track disappeared a hundred yards away. And wouldn't there be burned-down trees across the rails? No, not yet. The fire hasn't been burning long enough. And as to the smoke— "'It'll soon be just as bad on the river,' Alex declared. "'All right. Let us try it. But first, let us jump in the river and get good and wet,' suggested Jack. "'Good idea. Come on!' "'Or wait!' exclaimed Alex. "'Another idea. There is an old rubbish pile just over here, and a lot of tin cans. Let us get some and fill them with water, to keep our handkerchiefs wet, to breathe through.' They turned aside, quickly found and secured several empty cans each, and ran on. Reaching the water, they dropped the cans on the bank and plunged in bodily. As Alex had said, the water was intensely cold, and despite the relief to their eyes from the smoke, they clambered out again immediately, hastily filled the tins, and only pausing to tie their dripping handkerchiefs over their mouths, dashed back for the siding. You help me start her, Jack, directed Alex as they placed the cans of water in the forward end of the car. And when we reach the edge of the woods, jump in. I'll run at the first spell. Then you can relieve me. That way we can keep it going at a good clip. All ready? Let her go! With bowed heads they threw themselves against the little car. The rusty wheels began to screech. Rapidly they gained headway, and soon were on the run. They neared the smoke-hidden border of the clearing. "'Jump in, Jack!' cried Alex. Jack sprang over the tailboard and threw himself flat on his face, and with a rush they dashed into the wall of smoke. Rumbling and screeching, the car sped onward. Alex began to feel the heat. Suddenly it swept over them like the breath of a furnace, and there came a mighty roar. They were in the midst of the flames. "'Are you all right, Alex?' cried Jack. "'Yes.' A moment later, however, Alex, too, sprang into the car, and as he did so, tearing off his handkerchief and stuffing it into one of the water-cans. "'I couldn't have held on for (laughs) another minute,' he choked. "'I believe the handkerchief was burning.' Jack prepared to climb out to take Alex's place. "'No, lay still,' interposed Alex. "'The car will run by itself here. There's a downgrade.' Jack dropped back thankfully. "'Isn't it awful?' he gasped. "'My eyes are painting as though they would burst.' On rushed the car, down the roaring, crackling tunnel of flames, groaning and screeching like a mad thing. Tongues of fire began to lick over the sides of the car at the cringing boys within. Faster the car went. Presently it began to rock. "'She'll be off the track!' cried Jack at last. "'Lie farther over!' directed Alex above the roar, himself moving in the opposite direction. The rearrangement steadied the car slightly, but still it rocked and plunged on the long unused track, so that at times the boys' hearts leaped into their throats. The heat was now terrific. The floor and sides of the car began to blister and crack. "'We can't stand it much longer. We'll be cooked,' coughed Jack. "'Empty one of the cans over your head.' "'Alex shouted. Keep up a few minutes longer, and we will be over the worst. It is the leaves and brush that are making the heat, and we'll soon be where they have burned out.' "'I think we are over the worst of it now,' he announced a moment later. "'There's not so much crackling, and I don't think it is so hot.' Simultaneously the car began to leap less wildly, then perceptibly to slow up. Alex at once prepared to climb out again." "'I'll give her another run,' he said, but promptly Jack pressed him back. "'No, you don't. I'm going to take my turn.' And in another moment he was out in the full glare of the still shriveling heat, rushing the car on at the top of his speed. A hundred yards he drove it, and scrambled back within, gasping for breath. Emptying one of the remaining cans over Jack's head, Alex sprang out and took his place. A moment after, they struck a slight upgrade— alex uttered a joyful shout only a short run farther jack and we're out of the woods but immediately he followed this glad announcement with one of new alarm the washout i'd forgotten it it's just ahead the rails there almost hang in the air in a panic alex slowed up jack climbed out beside him let us rush it he suggested the rails may hold like a bridge we're not heavy we may as well take one more chance. Alex debated. All right. Come on. And jump quick when I say. I think I can tell when we are near it. Once more the car was flying onward through the haze. Here we come. Now! With a bound, Jack was back in the car. Alex made a final rush and sprang after. The car dipped forward and sideways. A breathless instant seemed to hang in mid-air, then righted and shot forward smoothly. Uttering a hoarse shout of joy, the boys leaped out and were again running the car ahead, and a moment later gave vent to a second and louder cry. In their faces blew the cooler air of a clearing. A few yards farther, they halted. "'I can't see a thing. Can't open them,' declared Jack, as they stood rubbing their eyes and recovering their breath. "'Neither can I. Give me your hand.' We'll soon fix it. There's a path here down to the water." Feeling with his foot, Alex found it, and pulling Jack after, hastened down, and in another moment both were on their stomachs on the river-bank, their faces deep in the cooling water. Ten minutes later, greatly revived, but with faces and hands intensely smarting from their burns, the boys replenished the cans of water, for they still had a 2 miles run through this smother of smoke. And lifted the car onto the mainline rails. As they did so, from far to the west came a whistle. A train. Can't we stop her? suggested Jack. They'd never see us in the smoke. Then, say, let us throw the old car across the tracks so they'll strike it. They would probably stop to see what it was. It might derail her. No. "'I've got it. Come on, get the car started so she'll cross the bridge, and I'll explain.' "'Now,' said Jack, as they rolled out on the trestle. "'You remember the steep grade just over the bridge? Well, we'll stop about fifty yards this side, wait till the train whistles the last crossing, then hit it up for all we're worth, and—'and let the train catch us?' cried Jack. "'But gracious, won't that be taking an awful chance?' "'No, for she won't be going very fast, on account of the curve at the bottom, and we'll be going like a house of fire,' declared Alex confidently. "'And when she bunts us, we'll jump for her cowcatcher, and five minutes later we'll be out in the glorious fresh air again.' "'Well, all right. If you're willing to take the risk, I am,' said Jack. They reached the spot designated by Alex and brought the car to a stand. Again came the whistle of the train. "'Ready!' cried Alex. "'The next time!' It came. Like sprinters, they threw themselves at the car, and in a few strides were racing down the rails at full speed, reached the head of the grade, and sprang over the tailboard just as the train rumbled onto the bridge. Downward they shot, gaining momentum at every turn of the wheels. "'Whew! But we're taking an awful chance,' said Jack nervously. "'No! Listen to her brakes!' said Alex. Despite his assurance, when, a moment later, the great engine suddenly appeared out of the smoke and came thundering down upon them, Alex faltered, and, with Jack, nervously clutched the sides of the little car. But dashing on unrestrained, they yet further increased their mad speed, and for a few seconds seemed even to be holding their own with the mighty mogul. Then the great engine began eating up the distance between them, and the boys gathered themselves together for the supreme moment. Closer came the roaring monster. "'Now don't jump,' cautioned Alex, who had regained his nerve. "'Wait until she's just going to hit us. Then fall forward and grab the brace. That rod there.' "'Here she comes. Ready? Now!' With a jolt the engine hit the car, and in an instant the boys fell forward, grasped a smoke-box brace, and in another moment had scrambled to the top of the cowcatcher, And they were safe. When, ten minutes later, the train came to a standstill at Bixton, the engineer suddenly felt his hair rise on end as two wildly unkempt and blackened figures appeared slowly dismounting from the front of his engine, and stumbled across the station platform. But the shout of joy which greeted them told they were no ghosts. "'Although I think we weren't far from it, were we, Jack?' said Alex, at home a few minutes after, when his mother made a similar comparison. "'I hope I'll not be as near it again for a long time to come,' said Jack, earnestly. End of chapter Chapter 8 of The Young Railroaders This LibriVox recording is in the public domain— and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Young Railroaders by F. Lovell Coombs Chapter 8. The Secret Telegram "'Alex, will you work for me three or four hours tonight? requested the Bixton night operator of Alex one evening late in October. "'I have just had an invitation to a surprise party at Brody's, and wouldn't care to miss it. Alex agreed willingly. "'I'll be right in line, then, for the latest news of the chase,' he declared. For an attempt had been made that morning to rob the farmer's savings bank at Zeisler. A posse had been sent from Bixton to aid in the pursuit of the robbers, and reports from the hunt were being anxiously looked for. "'Take care you don't get in line for any bullets,' laughed the operator as he left. It's your weakness, you know, to get mixed up in any excitement that's going on within a mile of you." To Alex's disappointment, hour after hour passed, however, and brought no further word, either of the pursued or the pursuers. Finally, just before midnight, hearing Zeisler come in on the wire to report the passing of a freight, Alex reached for the key, determined to inquire. As he did so, footsteps sounded on the silent platform without. The waiting room door opened, and two strangers appeared at the ticket window. Glancing in, they turned to the office door and entered. Hello, youngster, said the taller of the two, cordially, leaning over the parcel counter. What's the news from the manhunt? I was going to ask Zeisler just as you came in, replied Alex, turning again to the key. "'Well, never mind, then. Just tell them they were captured here, instead.' "'What? Captured here?' exclaimed Alex. "'That's it. About an hour ago, just north, by the Bloomsbury posse. Sheriff O'Brien sent us down with the news, so you could send word up and down the line and call in the other posses. No need of them plugging around all night.' But, instead of complying, Alex suddenly turned more fully toward the two men. What posse did you say you were with? Bloomsbury! Bloomsbury! said the smaller man impatiently. Bloomsbury? Don't you mean Bloomsburg? Well, what thunder indifference! The taller man flashed a warning gesture, and in an instant Alex understood. He was face to face with the bank robbers themselves. For a moment he stared from one to the other in consternation, then, sharply recovering himself, he turned quickly back to the key, But he was too late. He had betrayed his discovery. Both men laughed. "'Your surmise is correct, my young friend,' said the taller man, lightly. "'We are the gentlemen who were forced to leave Zeisler so hurriedly this morning.' "'But don't let that make any difference,' he continued, producing a revolver and placing it significantly on the counter before him. "'Go right ahead with the message.' Or wait, give me a blank, and I'll write it, so you will be sure to have it right. "'Oh, hold on,' interposed his companion. "'Now that he knows who we are, how do you know he will send the message as you write it, and not just the other thing? Give us away.' The first speaker threw down his pen. (laughs) "'Well, I am an idiot. That's so.' He thought a moment, then, turning toward Alex, eyed him sharply an instant and said— Youngster, I'll give you a dollar a word if you will give me your solemn promise to send this message just as I write it. A bare instant Alex hesitated while the tempter whispered that it would mean thirty or forty dollars for a few minutes' work and that everyone could take it for granted he had been compelled to send it. Then abruptly he leaned back in his chair and shook his head. I couldn't do it, he said quietly but positively. "'Oh, you couldn't, eh, goody-goody?' exclaimed the smaller man, with a snarl, catching up the revolver and pointing it at Alex's head. "'Now could you do it?' The taller man caught his arm. "'Don't be a fool, Jake. After all, we couldn't be sure he wasn't fooling us, even if we took the money. Look here. I have a scheme.' They stepped back and spoke together in low tones for a moment, Then the taller turned again to Alex, who meantime had remained quiet in his chair, futilely endeavouring to think of some means of spreading the alarm. "'I suppose you're not the only operator at this station, kid?' "'No, there is a day and a night operator. I'm only subbing for the night man,' responded Alex, wondering. "'Where is he?' "'At a party.' "'Where is the day man?' "'At his boarding-house.' "'But you couldn't get either of them to do it,' Alex declared confidently, thinking he had caught the drift of their purpose. "'Never mind what we could or what we couldn't. Where does the day operator board? Is it far?' Momentarily Alex had a mind to refuse to tell. Then, on the thought that suspicion might be aroused if one of the robbers went to route the day man out, he replied, "'About a quarter of a mile,' and described how the house could be reached." Again the two men held a whispered consultation, and at its conclusion the smaller man hurriedly left. "'Now I suppose you're wondering what we propose doing with the day operator,' said the tall man, with a grin, when they were alone. "'Well, it's so good I think I'll tell you. One of the cleverest getaway schemes you ever heard of, and my own idea. Can you guess?' Alex shook his head. "'If it's not to send the message—' in which i know he won't i don't know the robber laughed (laughs) you are going to send the message and he is going to stand just outside the door here and tell us letter by letter just what you make the instruments say see alex uttered an exclamation and strange as it may seem it was not entirely of chagrin for the striking originality and ingenuity of the plan immediately appealed to his own peculiar genius for getting over difficulties. "'And then,' continued the talkative safe-breaker, "'we will tie you both in your chairs, cut the wires, and then flag the night express, and depart for the east like respectable citizens, and by the time you have been found and the wires restored, we will be well out of danger.' Now, I claim there is some class to that scheme. What? Despite himself, Alex could not forbear a smile, even when he at once saw that to defeat the plan would be almost an impossibility. Nevertheless, as the bank robber turned his attention to a timetable, Alex determinedly addressed his wits to the problem. Presently, as he sat looking at the telegraph instruments for an inspiration, he started. That last First of April joke he had played on his father. The cut-off arrangement of wires was still in place beneath the instrument table. Could he not use it?" He determined to see whether the connections were still in order. Fortunately, he was sitting close to the table, with his feet beneath. Making a move as though tired of his position, he crossed one foot over the other and sank a little lower in the chair. Then, the change having brought no comment from the man at the counter, he carefully reached out the upper foot, found the two wires, and pressed them together. Immediately came a click from the instruments. It was in working order. With hope, Alex at once addressed himself to its possibilities, and soon a suggestion came. "'Yes. I believe I could do it,' he told himself with satisfaction. "'I'll make a try, anyway so much for never giving up.' At that moment the footfalls of the returning robber and those of another sounded on the platform without. Both men were talking, and as they entered the waiting-room Alex heard the evidently still unsuspecting Jones say, "'Funny, though, I never heard of the boy being troubled with his heart before.' The next moment Jones's casual tones changed to a sharp cry of fright, and Alex knew that the robber had revealed himself now you keep your tongue between your teeth and do exactly what you were told young man or you get this you understand now turn about you're back toward the office door so the door was flung open and the robber appeared standing sideways his gun in his hand pointing at the day operator who was just out of alex's sight now what you are to do is read off letter by letter what this young shaver in here sends on the wire you are a tab on him you understand in a trembling voice jones responded in the affirmative and the first one of you who appears to do anything not straight and above board gets daylight through his head he added raising his voice for alex's benefit then addressing his partner he said give the kid the message bill the tall man leaned over the counter and tossed the blank on the table before Alex. "'Who will I send it to first? asked Alex. "'The Sheriff, Watson Siding.' "'All right. But first, you know, I have to call him,' explained Alex, somewhat nervously, now that the critical moment had come. "'His call is W.S.' Therewith he began slowly calling that Jones might read off each letter as he sent it. W.S. 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 B.X. W.S. W.S. I. I. answered W.S. W.S. answers, interpreted Jones. Steadying himself with a deep breath, Alex proceeded to carry out his plan. Carefully reaching forth with his foot beneath the table, he pressed the two wires together then loudly clicked his key. The instruments, thus cut out, of course failed to respond. "'The wire appears to have opened,' announced Jones. "'Probably the man at W.S. has opened his key while getting a blank or a pin.' Again Alex clicks the key, as though in a futile effort to send, then leaving it open, thus holding the instruments on the table dead, began ticking his foot against the impromptu key beneath the table. And while the instruments at Bixton remained momentarily silent, the surprised operator at Watson's siding read in draggy but decipherable signals the words, Read. Every. Other. Word. "'Come on! Come on!' exclaimed the man in the doorway, turning suspiciously. Immediately Alex withdrew his foot and closed the key— and at the resulting audible click, Jones announced, "'The wire is closed. He can send now.' "'All right, come ahead,' commanded the short man, impatiently. Then, very deliberately, with a pause after each word, seemingly to enable Jones to interpret, but really to give himself time to send another word, unheard, beneath the table, Alex sent on the key, and Jones read aloud the following message— sheriff watson siding safe blowers have been captured near here call in your posse signed o'brien sheriff Quig county what the at first puzzled and then thunderstruck operator at watson siding read off his instrument ran very differently it read safe they blowers are have here been in captured station near intend here going call out in by your night posse express signed phone o'brien back sheriff here quig quick county when you read every other word the message he sent was they are here in station Intend going out by night express. Phone back here quick. A moment after giving his OK, the Watson siding operator was at the telephone calling for Bixton Central. Meantime, having thus sent the message to WS to the bank breaker's satisfaction, Alex proceeded to call and send it by turns to Zeisler, Hammerton, and other stations on the line. Sending slowly, to make the most of his time, It was within fifteen minutes of the hour the express was due, when Alex had sent the last of the messages. "'Now you can step in and see your friend,' said the man in the doorway, addressing Jones, who appeared white and trembling, and coming behind the counter, dropped into a chair facing Alex. The speaker then once more disappeared, and presently an opening click of the instruments told the nature of his errand. The wires had been cut.' He soon returned, and rummaging about, while the taller man stood guard over them, he found some ropes, and proceeded to bind Alex and the day operator tightly in their chairs. Just as the task was completed, there came a long-drawn whistle from the west. Both robbers promptly turned to the door. "'Well, good-night, gentlemen,' said the smaller, grimly. "'Much obliged for your kind services.' "'And I would just pause to repeat—' Said the taller, jocosely, that there is some class to this getaway scheme, should anyone ask you. Good night. Yes, there is class, but it isn't first. Uttering a cry, the two bank robbers staggered back from the door, and with a bound, the deputy sheriff and a constable were upon them, bore them to the floor, and after a brief but terrific struggle, disarmed and handcuffed them. Yes, said the sheriff, rising and with his knife quickly freeing the two prisoners. There was class to it, but it was second. Our young friend here takes first. The robbers turned upon Alex with furiously flashing eyes. "'How did you do it, smarty?' snapped the shorter man. Alex laughed, kicked one foot beneath the table, and the instrument responded with a click. "'A little First of April trick? What do you think of it?' whatever the two renegades might have said through their gritting teeth, there was no doubt as to what the sheriff and the others thought, nor the bank officials at Zeisler, when, a day later, there came to Alex a highly commendatory letter and a check for two hundred dollars. But better even than this, in Alex's estimation, a few mornings after, the chief dispatcher called him to the wire and announced his appointment as night operator at Foothills, a small town on the western division. End of chapter. Chapter 9 of The Young Railroaders. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Young Railroaders by F. Lovell Coombs. Chapter 9 Jack Plays Reporter with Unexpected Results. Not long after Alex left Bixton to take up his duties at foothills, Jack, at Hammerton, also received an advancement. In itself it was not of particular note, beyond an encouraging increase in salary, and a transfer from the day to the night force, but indirectly it resulted in an experience more thrilling than any Jack's genius for tackling adventurous difficulties had yet brought him. Wheeling by the office of the Daily Star one afternoon, he heard his name called and turned his head to discover West, the reporter with whom he had made the memorable Oakton trip, hastening after him. Just the man I was looking for, Jack, declared West as the young operator wheeled to the curb. I have a job for you. How would you like to tackle a bit of black hand investigation? Jack laughed. You don't mean it? I certainly do. It's this way, went on the reporter, lowering his voice. A black-hand letter demanding money was received last week by Tommy Spinelli, of the Italian restaurant. It was mailed here, and we have the tip that last evening two foreigners were seen stealing across the old quarry turnpike and into the woods, as though not wishing to be seen. Of course they may not be connected with this at all, but again they may, and I was put on the job to find out. The difficulty is that I am too well known." If they caught sight of me, they would be suspicious immediately. But they would never suspect a lad like you, West proceeded. And I know that you could carry anything through that came along. So will you run out there and investigate for me? Why, certainly. But just what shall I do? Jack asked. Wheel up and down the quarry turnpike for an hour or so. Then, if you have seen no one— Beat around through the woods as far as the old stone quarry. And any foreigners you come upon, take a good look at. That's all. And drop in at the office here in the morning, and report. That's easy. All right, agreed Jack readily. Thank you. And keep the matter quiet, you know, West added. We want an exclusive story for the star, if anything comes of it. I understand. And say— said Jack, as he turned away. I'll take my camera, too. I may be able to get a snap of them, if I see any one. Good idea! A picture would help to land them, if they are the fellows we want, and we could run it in the paper with our story. Go ahead, Jack, and good luck. Jack was not long in wheeling home, and securing his folding brownie, and a half-hour later found him pedalling slowly along the quarry road, near the point several miles from the city where the suspicious foreigners had been seen to enter the woods. An hour passed, however, and he had seen no doubtful characters, and finally dismounting at the entrance to a path he knew to lead toward the old stone quarry, Jack concealed his wheel in a thicket, and set off to make an investigation in that direction. A moment after he came to a halt with a sharp exclamation. In the path at his feet lay a murderous-looking stiletto. Picking it up, he examined it. Yes, it was of foreign make, and the still damp mud-stains on the side of the blade which had lain uppermost showed that it had been but recently dropped. Apprehensively Jack cast a glance about him, almost immediately to utter a second suppressed exclamation— Emerging from the woods on the opposite side of the road was a short, dark man, undoubtedly an Italian. With beating heart Jack watched him. Was he one of the men he was looking for? In the middle of the road the stranger halted, looked sharply to right and left, and came quickly forward. Darting from the path Jack threw himself on the ground behind a bush, and the next moment the man hurriedly passed him. He was soon out of sight— and rising, Jack placed the dagger carefully in an inside pocket, and determinedly set off after. Half a mile he followed the Italian amid the trees. Then there appeared the light of an opening, and going forward more carefully, Jack found himself on the edge of the quarry clearing. The foreigner was hurrying along the brink of the excavation, evidently heading for a small tumble-down cabin at its farther end. The man reached the shanty and knocked. To Jack's surprise, the door was opened by a negro. Wonder at this was quickly forgotten, however, for as the door closed, from the woods behind Jack came the sound of voices, then an ejaculation in Italian. A moment Jack stood, in consternation, believing he had been seen. But a glance showed that the owners of the voices were not yet out of sight beyond a rise, and recalling his wits, Jack ran for a nearby clump of elders. The voices came quickly nearer. Suddenly then, for the first time, Jack recalled the camera. At once came the suggestion to get a snap of the newcomers as they stepped into the clearing. Jack glanced about him. A short distance away, and but a few feet from the path, was a low, tent-like spruce. With instant decision he made for it, drawing the camera from his pocket as he ran. Dropping to his knees, He wormed his way beneath the tree, and through to the opposite side. Finding an aperture commanding the exit of the path, he opened and focused the camera upon it. The next moment the two Italians appeared. For the fraction of a second, Jack hesitated, fearing the click of the shutter might betray him. But he took the chance. There was a crisp, low click, and he had them, and they had passed on. Chuckling with delight, Jack crept forth. What next? Looking toward the shanty, he again saw the door opened by the negro. This decided him. Replacing the camera in his pocket, he set off on a circuit through the trees that would bring him back to the clearing immediately opposite the shanty, determined if possible to reach it, and learn what was going on inside. Without incident, he made the point desired, and gazing from the cover of a bush— "'discovered with satisfaction that the two hundred yards separating him from his goal "'was dotted with small bushy spruce. "'More important still, on that side of the cabin were no windows. "'Stooping, Jack was about to steal forth when he paused with a new idea. "'It came from a stray piece of wrapping paper lying on the ground before him. "'Why couldn't he conceal the camera in this paper, with a string tied to the shutter?' approach the house, knock, ask some question, and secretly snap whoever opened the door. To think was to decide, and at once he set about preparations. Finding some cord in a pocket, he first deadened the click of the shutter with a thread of the string, and secured a piece of it to the shutter-trigger. Carefully, then, he wrapped the camera, open, in the paper, and with his knife cut a small hole opposite the lens and a second and smaller hole beneath. Through the latter he fished out the trigger-string, and the detective camera was complete. Without delay, Jack adjusted the parcel under his arm, holding the trigger-string in his fingers, and strode boldly forward toward the shanty. He reached it, approached the door, and knocked. From within came the sound of voices, then a heavy step. Drawing the string taut, Jack moved back several paces, and pointed the opening in the package at the door. But success was not to come too easily. The latch lifted, and the door opened only a few inches, barely showing the eyes and flat nose of the negro. "'What you want,' he demanded. "'Would you please tell me the way out to the road?' asked Jack steadily. The negro regarded him sharply a moment, then opening the door barely sufficient to reach out a hand— pointed towards the woods and said gruffly You see dat broke tree right out dere which one i see too declared jack coolly impatiently the negro threw the door open stepped out and pointed again in an instant jack had pulled the string and from the parcel had come a soft thuk thank you sir said jack turning away and inwardly chucking at the double meaning of the words "'Thank you.' "'But look here, boy,' added the colored man threateningly, "'don't you be prowling round here, understand?' "'No fear. I'll be glad when I'm away,' responded Jack, again secretly laughing, and headed for the woods, the negro watching him until he was halfway across the clearing. Once more in the shelter of the trees, Jack determined to follow up his success by endeavouring to discover just what was taking place at the cabin." Hiding the camera in a convenient brush-heap, he made sure all was quiet, and again stole forth. Slipping quickly from shrub to shrub, he safely made the crossing and came to a halt at the rear of the shanty. To his ears came the sound of voices in subdued discussion. They were so muffled, however, that he could distinguish nothing, and recalling a partly open window at the front, he went forward to the corner, peered cautiously about, and tiptoed to within a few feet of it. At once, the voices came to him plainly. "'You got the dat? Stand in doorway, hat in your hand, upside down,' responded the coloured man's gruff voice. Wondering, Jack drew nearer. "'At half-a-past-two by the big clock,' continued the first speaker. There was a pause, and the negro repeated—' At half-past two by the city clock, shop. Suddenly it came to Jack. At the dictation of the Italian, the Negro was writing a black-hand letter, ordering one of their victims to display some signal to show that the demand for money would be complied with. The Italian's next sentence left no further doubt. "'If you no give a de sign, you dead a man by six clock.' At the words, and the fierceness with which they were uttered, Jack felt a chill run up his spine. Had he followed his immediate impulse, he would have fled, but determining to learn, if possible, who the letter was for, he waited. "'What number?' asked the negro. Fifty-nine Maine.' "'The Italian restaurant. Another letter to Spinelli, the men he was after.' Jack waited to hear no more, but tiptoeing back about the corner, was off for the woods, jubilant at his success. Indeed Jack was over-jubilant, so jubilant he forgot the necessity of caution, made a short run across an open space in full view of the shanty, and halfway was brought to a sudden realization of his mistake by the creak of an opening door. In consternation he at once saw he could not reach cover before being seen, and also that did he run, the black-handers would understand they had been discovered." With quick presence of mind, he recognized and instantly did the one thing possible. Turning, he headed back boldly for the cabin. The next instant the three Italians came into view, immediately discovered him, and halted. Secretly trembling, but with a cool front, Jack approached them as they stood, excitedly whispering. "'Would you kindly tell me the time?' he asked. The three men exchanged glances, then, as at a signal, stepped forward and surrounded him. "'Now what do you want?' demanded one of them sharply, thrusting his dark face close to Jack's. Before Jack could repeat his question, the shanty door opened and the negro appeared. Exclaiming angrily, he ran toward them. "'What he want! What he want now?' he demanded. "'He say, what at de time?' repeated one of the Italians. "'What the time! He am a spy! A spy!' cried the negro. "'In de house with him!' Jack sprang back and turned to run. With a rush the negro and one of the foreigners were upon him, and despite his terrified struggles he was dragged bodily into the shanty. There they flung him heavily into a chair, and gathered menacingly about him. "'Now, boy, what you spying round here for, eh?' demanded the negro fiercely. Instinctively, Jack opened his lips to deny the charge, but closed them and remained in dogged silence. Despite his peril, he felt he could not tell a deliberate falsehood. The negro repeated the question. I simply asked them the time, said Jack evasively. With a snarl, one of the foreigners caught him by the shoulders and yanked him upright. Tie him he directed, and roughly two of the others drew Jack's hands behind him and bound them with a cord. As one of the Italians then proceeded to tie a handkerchief about his ankles, Jack barely suppressed a cry of fright. But grimly he clenched his teeth, and not a sound escaped him as the negro then caught him up, carried him across the room, kicked open a door, and threw him upon the floor within. For a few minutes Jack lay dazed. Then turning on his side, he looked about him. By the dim light of a dusty window, he saw he was in a small, roughly furnished bedroom. Before he had taken in further particulars, however, a sound of heated discussion in the outer room drew his attention. "No, no, we can't take it a chance," came the voice of one of the Italians. "Not with dat boy." Filled anew with terror, Jack struggled to a sitting position and began straining desperately at his bonds. A moment's effort caused his heart to sink. The knots were as taut as though made of wire. Determinedly he continued to strain and pull, however, and presently, losing his balance, he rolled over on his side, and something hard pressed into his chest. The dagger he had picked up! Quickly he saw the possibility of using it. Working again into a sitting position, he bent low and sought to reach inside his coat, and seize the hilt of the knife, with his teeth but as often as he reached the coat swung and the hilt evaded him jack was not to be beaten however getting to his knees he bent far over until his head almost touched the floor and fell vigorously to shaking himself at the second effort the dagger slipped out to the floor quickly then he got a firm hold on the end of the handle with his teeth struggled again to a sitting position drew his knees up as far as possible and bending low between them, began stabbing at the handkerchief about his ankles with the point of the weapon. At the first attempt, the knife barely touched the handkerchief. He tried again, and just reached it. Throwing his head far back, to gain momentum, he lunged forward with all his strength. The keen point struck the linen squarely, there was a rip and tear, and his feet were free. As the severed handkerchief fell from his ankles, The dagger, slipping from Jack's teeth, clattered to the floor. But the noisy discussion still going on without prevented its being heard, and promptly Jack turned to the problem of freeing his hands. As they were tied behind him, this promised to be far more difficult. Indeed, Jack's courage was beginning to fail him when the method of freeing his ankles suggested a possibility. At once he essayed it. Rising to a kneeling position, he strained at his wrists for several minutes, then, bending far over, began working his hands down beneath him. It seemed as though they would never come, and again and again he had to pause for breath. Desperately he continued, and suddenly at last they slipped, and were under him, directly below his knees. Throwing himself over on his side, he once more grasped the dagger-hilt in his teeth, and as he lay, carefully aimed the point between his legs at the cord about his wrists, and gave a quick hard thrust. At the first blow he struck the cord fairly, but only half-severed the strand. Again he lunged, and the next moment he was free. The heated debate was still in progress in the outer room, and nearly exhausted though he was, Jack immediately scrambled to his feet and tiptoed to the window. To his joy he discovered it was made of a sliding frame, only fastened by a loosely driven nail. It required but a few minutes' work to remove this, and very cautiously he began sliding the window back. Halfway it went easily, without noise. Then it stuck. Carefully Jack put his shoulder to it. Suddenly, without warning, it gave, then stopped with a jar and to his horror a broken pane shot from the frame and fell clattering to the floor. From the other room came a shout and a rush of feet. In desperation Jack stepped back and with a run fairly dove at the opening. His head and shoulders passed through, then he stuck. Behind him the door flew open. With a desperate wriggle he struggled through and fell in a heap to the ground just as the negro reached the window and made a wild lunge for him. The next moment Jack was on his feet, and off across the clearing like a hare. The four lawbreakers were quickly out of the house in full chase. Presently there was the report of a pistol, and a shrill whew just over Jack's head. Ducking instinctively, but with grimly set lips, he rushed on. Again came the whine of a bullet, and again. With a final sprint, Jack reached the cover of the woods in safety darted to the brush-pile, and recovered his camera, and on, straight through the trees for the spot at which he had hidden his wheel. Love of outdoor life and sports now stood Jack in good stead. Despite the exhausting efforts of his escape, and the hard running amid the trees, over trunks and through undergrowth, he kept on at the top of his speed, and finally reached the road ahead of the nearest of his pursuers. Rushing for his wheel, he dragged it forth, and quickly had it on the road. Not a moment too soon. As he sprang into the saddle there was a shout and a crash of bushes but a few feet from him. But throwing all his weight on the pedals, he shot away, and a moment after sped around a bend in the road, and was safe. Jack would not have been a real boy had there not been considerable pride in his voice, when, entering the Star office the following morning, he handed west the reporter, Two small photographs, neatly mounted, and said, "'Here are the pictures, Mr. West.' West sprang to his feet. "'No! Great! Splendid!' he cried. "'How did you do it, Jack?' "'But here!' Pushing Jack into a chair, he dropped back into his own and caught up a pencil. "'Give me the whole story, from beginning to end. If the police round up these fellows this morning, we will run it in today's edition.' This, with the aid of Jack's snapshots, the police did, capturing the entire band, and that afternoon's edition of The Star carried a two-column story of Jack's adventure with the black-handers, which, with the pictures, made what West declared, THE BIGGEST STORY OF A MONTH OF SUNDAYS. END OF CHAPTER